How do you combine artificial and human intelligence to win in marketing and advertising? Hello and welcome to Growth Masterminds. My name is John Katsir. Today we're chatting with an OG in marketing and advertising. He helped launch the first ever banner ad, was the first to embed e-commerce in a website. He's now focused on augmented intelligence and a lot of other stuff. His name is Tom Zawaki. He's the president of Enterprise Solutions for Data Axle. Welcome, Tom. Hey, John. Thanks so much for that. Super pumped to have you. I got to talk. I got to ask. First banner ad, tell me the story. Yeah, you know, I, I often apologize for this moment uh, in time. I was um, at a company. <laughs> no, I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. I know. It was us. I'm sorry. Um, no, I was, I was at a company called Moda Media. We were one of the first interactive advertising agencies in the industry. Uh, this is going back to 1992. Um, and, you know, when the internet hit, we were prepared to be a first mover. And so our teams were working with clients like AT&T and uh, Quartz Brewing Company and all of the, what were becoming the website publishers. And so we decided to work with the publishers to create this rectangular ad unit that would click from the publisher's site to the advertiser site. And Click-through rates were 96% at the time, which was pretty awesome. Um, but, uh, no, that, you know, the, the teams that I linked with, it was, it was really interesting uh, to be part of that innovative time. And, uh, and it helped build the foundation of what became a great industry. What did you call it? Did you call it a banner ad? Did you call, what did you, what did you, did you have a name for it? So it's really interesting that you asked that. Um, so the original concept was drawn on a whiteboard and we were drawing outlines of the website that were out there. Hotwired was one of them, right? And, and those types, Netscape Navigator was one of them. And we called them tiles. Originally, we said, if we could just take a tile and put the tile on one website and have them click there and go to another website, that would be really cool. And that was it. So that was the original, uh, original concept. Interesting. Way ahead of your time. Then Windows Phone came out and it had tiles and tiles are all <laughs> rage in various web design areas. That's awesome. So I've yeah. now talked to, you know, and back up. I've, I've, I've had a beer in two bars that claim to be old, the oldest bar in the States. Oh. So there are, there are probably some multiple claims here. I don't know about that, but I've talked to the person who set up the first banner ad and the person, I forget her name, I'm going to find it, I'll put it in the video later, but the <laughs> person who bought the first text ad actually as well. Oh, that's really the cool. Your rates were insane there also. Um, so, <laughs> Yes, it was part of the AT&T You Will campaign back in the early 90s. I don't know if you remember that campaign, but AT&T was promoting innovation at the time and it was a you know perfect storm for us. So we were lucky to do it. Was that a campaign like you haven't done X online, but you will something like that? Exactly. Do you remember that it was like people at the beach doing work on a laptop and it's like, you can't do this today, but you will someday. And here we are. Yeah. And what year was that? Gosh, that was 94, 95. I'm pretty sure. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't know what we were unleashing. We did not know. <laughs> work just expanded to cover everywhere. 2 a.m. Oh, it's an email. All yeah. that. <laughs> right. Well, there was a lot of you were at the time and now I, there's a you shouldn't have. You know? <laughs> and you did something about inserting e-commerce. It wasn't into a website. It was a social network. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. It was uh, Lemonade. And the original concept came from um, when we all grew up as kids, we had lemonade stands. And that was our first introduction to business. It's going to be a fun year. I don't yes, know what happened. Dude, I, it, it, I, it, they're awesome. I mean, it really introduces kids to, to business, right? And, and the community that you're selling to typically 
is you set up that lemonade stand on your local neighborhood block in your community. Well, we looked at social networks and blogs the same way that you were able to put up a digital lemonade stand on your social network. And within that, you were able to sell your own products and or the products of brands that you love. And so we embedded e-commerce into social networks. We were one of the first companies to do that. Um, we were named the Time Magazine CNN website application of the year in 2007, I think it was. Facebook had about 5 million users at the time. So we were really crushing it, John. Um, that's, you know, that was my story. But no, I mean, it was, it was an awesome, awesome uh, opportunity. We learned a ton about the interplay between a, an influencer or a social, social media owner, their fans or their followers, and the brands that they were talking about. And really what's evolved out of all of that work is the influencer world today that's incredible, where Taylor Swift can talk to her fans. She was a client back in the day, by the way. She's amazing. Uh, I'm a huge Swifty. I'm, I'm a, I love Tay-Tay. Um, so back in the- I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Never heard of <laughs> Come on, I know, you went, I know you went to her concert. I know you did. Did not. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, the amazing, amazing trust and passion that her fans have in her. And when she talks about merchandise or her songs or another product, it has a, a very, very profound impact on, on those fans. And so seeing that interplay between e-commerce, brands, consumers and their fans uh, and social network owners at the time, it was really, really fascinating. Cool. And that was just the beginning of a series of revolutions really in how we do business and culminating in generative AI. So, you know, um, been lucky enough to work with some of the best brands in the world, Fortune 1000 global companies. And um, it's really been a story of business transformation in working with them. Um, there was a time in the 90s where uh, IBM coined the phrase e-business. You had to change your business to an e-business. And what they were talking about was building a website and doing e-commerce, uh, being able to do an email campaign. Um, and so these businesses were trying to transform themselves from an analog business to a digital business and companies that embraced that business transformation, they did extremely well. I remember working at Delta airlines back in the day and Delta airlines had ticketing systems and legacy systems that had all their passenger information in it. And we had to transform them to a company that did paperless ticketing. And they were one of the first companies to do that, to sell tickets online and to do paperless ticketing. That was a huge transformation at the time. We kind of take it for granted now, um, but that was a big tr business transformation in the 90s. And then you fast forward from that business transformation into the 2000, 2010s, and the next innovation to come up were social and mobile. And so now you had your e-business, but you had to do e-commerce on a tiny screen in mobile commerce. You had to release your brand into social networks where you didn't have the control over that brand message anymore. It was user-generated content and whatnot. And so, again, companies had to transform their business to go from an e-business to work in the distributed economy in mobile devices and in social networks. And so now we fast forward to today, and this is now the third big sea change in the industry where the new innovation is artificial intelligence. And similarly, companies need to transform their businesses to embrace artificial intelligence and weave it in a sensible way throughout their organization to succeed. And the companies who have done that over the years have done a great job and, and have done really well. They're cautionary tales. There was a, uh, um, Borders Books back in the day had an opportunity to buy 
Amazon. I don't know if you remember that. And, you know, the, I think the famous quote was, we have everybody books online, right? And so they didn't transform their business. They missed it. Uh, in the distributed economy, when, when social hit and mobile hit, I remember Kodak, uh, Kodak Films was saying, well, our third business is built on paper and chemicals and printing pictures. And I, and I was like, but it's going away, guys. Like, you know, and they missed that. But and Kodak was a company that a hundred technology patents, $12 billion company went out of business because they didn't transform their business. So we're here again now where some companies will embrace this and transform their business to take advantage of AI and they'll do really well. And there'll probably be some companies that don't. It's, um, it's unfair really, uh, because we get to look <laughs> back and we can see how things screwed up because we know how things turned out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When we're embedded in a scenario, especially when we're embedded in a company or we've been working in a certain space for a while, we kind of know what we know. And that's our, that, that, that's a strength and it's also a weakness. Yeah. If we look at AI and we're going to get to AI and advertising and marketing very soon, but if we look at AI from an app perspective, we see a lot of stuff that's getting out there right now. So we, we see some stuff in sort of the, the LLM space. We see some stuff in like photo space, you know, create 12 business photos of me in different contexts and stuff like that. Probably a lot of the intelligence is back in the cloud, but it, there, there's an app front end to that. Mm -hmm. If you think mobile apps, what do you think are some of the big opportunities in terms of embedding AI into them? Yeah. So certainly in the creative, uh, dynamic creative optimization space. Um, one of the nice things about using generative AI is it allows us to increase the volume of production when creating uh, copy and or visual design, um, certainly with ChatGPT or Jasper or Dolly on the visual design side. Um, we have many tools to be able to very quickly create an experience in, in mobile. And um, forever we've been promising the uh, delivery of personalization. And what's gotten our way is the volume and velocity of variables that create these combinations of creative message and visual design that humans just can't create fast enough. And so, you know, employing AI in a smart way within the dynamic creative optimization realm will uh, help us to create new, both mobile messaging, SMS messaging, um, that will be as personalized as it's ever been and conceptually is going to increase our business performance, our response rates, our conversion rates, uh, the dollars per conversion off of those programs, which at the end of the day is really what our, our advertisers are looking for. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense in terms of existing customers because existing customers have a history and you know what they bought in the past and you may have some support history on them or some communication preferences and stuff like that. When you're looking at advertising and you're looking at conquest, acquisition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. new users, new players, new customers, those sorts of things, it's a little harder to personalize, maybe impossible, not impossible, but it's harder because you don't have data and in the era of privacy, you really don't have a lot of history on where they've been, what they've done. Maybe you can make some assumptions based on the context your ad is being shown. Maybe you can make some assumptions based on a device or time of day or season or something like that. How's that work? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons I came to Datax about five years ago and I had been in the, previously I'd been in the, um, the AI acquisition space, applying AI to media bidding algorithms. Um, and one of the things that we were thirsty for in that space was great data 
paying an anonymous users and or prospects that we were looking at. And so one of the nice things about being at a 50-year-old data company uh, is that um, we have data on 320 million consumers, 188 million households, 70 million businesses, and the employees within those businesses. And so if you're an advertiser and you're looking for a prospect pool that looks like your most valuable customers, which is typically where we'll start. We'll start with the most valuable customer, and then we'll create a model that looks like that or an audience that looks like that. Um, we have all of that data already set. And so I know the prospects and all of the attributes about those prospects for acquisition marketing. One of the keys though is, and you, you touched on this, is on the retention or lifetime value building side of our customers, um, we typically will have a lifetime value or profitability model of those customers. Very rarely is that data applied in the acquisition world. And so what we do with our, with our customers and our clients is instead of looking at a cost per acquisition, a CPA goal, we look at a CPQA goal, cost per clarity acquisition. So we take the lifetime value attributes that talk about profitability, um, a lack of churn, all of the things that make somebody a very profitable customer. And then we use that in our acquisition modeling. And that way we get to a CPQA model. The CPA, you may hit your volume goals in a CPA. You may uh, acquire that many customers, but then they might churn or they might not be profitable. And that stinks because you spent all that money on it. And so we try to do that predictive modeling up front. And we use machine learning and um, an AI to help us in that predictive modeling, which then leads to better performance and acquisition and then better lifetime value from those customers we've acquired. Everybody's always got to invent a new metric, huh? You got to have an extra well, letter in there, John. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. It's what I do all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the barrier to entry becomes larger, larger. Uh -huh. It's all good. I yeah. totally get it. It makes a lot of sense. Makes life harder for marketers in a sense because, hey, I just want to hit my CPA goal. I hit my CPA goal. Give me, sign me up for my bonus. It's done. Awesome. <laughs> I'm on the beach. Now you're saying, hey, it's about full value over the long term. That makes 100% of sense. You work with big yeah. brands. You also work with some mobile companies and they have very, very different things going on, right? If you're Nike or if you're at Disney, uh, you're looking at very different things. And if you're maybe uh, creating a mobile game or doing a, a productivity app, does this work on the smaller scale as well, where your LTV might be 50 bucks or $250, not $3,000 or $10,000? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we, we have a great... Um small business practice where we work with uh, 13,000 small businesses all the way down to mom and pop shops who are spending a couple hundred dollars a, a week on Facebook to try and promote their uh, plumbing service within a certain town or, or locality. Um, and so, you know, the same concepts or the same models will scale up or down depending, but the outcome, because these are outcome-based models, the outcome-based models are, are looking at an ROI and whether you're a small company or a large company, the, the variables that go into that are, are the same, you know, the, the cost, the response rate, the conversion rate, the dollars per conversion. It's, it's very similar. What's interesting that you mentioned mobile gaming, though, because some of the metrics that we do use, especially in the, um, uh, on some of the smaller audiences in our smaller companies that we work with, are more similar to mobile gaming. So when you talk about MAUs or DAUs, um, you know, we look at the engagement of audiences, not necessarily in some cases, the conversion of those audiences, because some of those smaller businesses aren't as sophisticated as a Nike or a Disney. So they're not doing 
multi-touch fractional attribution, right? They're just not going to, they're not going to do that. And so they're in a world where they're looking at, um, am I engaging with a local audience that makes sense for my business in a 30 mile radius around my business? And those engagement levels can look like MAUs or DAUs in, in the mobile space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the interesting thing and the reason I brought up mobile gaming is they're probably the most sophisticated marketers on the planet in terms of performance marketing. And they're not a small business. They're spending $10 million a month. They're spending $20 million a month. They're spending massive sums on, uh, in some cases, uh, 100 different acquisition sources, ad partners from the majors like the Metas and the Googles yeah. and the Apple search ads to um, many of the uh, SDK networks and other things like that. And these people know their metrics like you would not believe, even though the LTV of the game, let's say of the average, you know, uh, even quality acquired user might be, let's say $250 or $500. Yeah. Or like these people know their stuff immensely and, 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 and are, are some of the, the most advanced in the world. Well, two, two quick thoughts on that. One is I have to give a shout out to Supercell who made Clash Royale and I'm still an avid Clash Royale player. Um, started it when my kids were younger and it was a, a social currency for me to have a conversation with my kids to be able to talk about, did, you know, was Valkyrie better than Skeleton Armies, better than Royal Giant, right? I mean, like these are great conversations to have with your kids when they're, when they're growing up. So thank you, Supercell, for Clash Royale. I really appreciate it. Um, and... Uh, but the, you know, the other really interesting thing about that is the volume and velocity of data that they're dealing with is immense, right? And it's really cool to see them use that, not just for their marketing tactics, but using it for game development itself. And so they're constantly tweaking the, algorithm, uh, the algorithms of, um, uh, of uh, non-human players, you know, uh, to make the games more realistic or more fair or whatever it might be based on, on what we're doing. And so I really appreciate that application of that data. When you think about how, as consumers, our consumer expectations have changed immensely because of game developers in the mobile space and because of companies who have woven AI into their experiences. When I'm writing a text message, it's recommending the wig before I finish it. Now I now have an expectation that marketers are going to be predictive and know that I want before I finish, right? And um, GPS will reroute me based on the best way to get to a destination without me asking. Um, so it's reset consumer expectations in a big way. And, and the mobile game developers have done that. So the, the experiences themselves are optimized constantly. And the messaging that I'm getting is optimized constantly to be relevant to me. And so now if I'm a large marketer, if I'm P&G, I have to now live up to the consumer expectations that, that I, you know, these consumers have in using these other applications all day long. And so how does a brand like Pampers live up to what, you know, Zynga is able to do from a real-time optimization standpoint? I mean, that's, that's like the, the crazy challenge right now for, for marketers. Uh, and it's awesome. It's really awesome. Don't get me started with the sensors in the diapers and the <laughs> the mobile app and that <laughs> probably exists. I, I'm I'm totally spitballing here, but it probably exists. Oh. <laughs> I have no idea. I want to talk a little bit about augmented intelligence. Uh, as we 
We've been in this era of generative AI. Well, an Intel researcher that I talked to about half a year ago said we were doing it in the 70s. And strictly <laughs> speaking, we were. We were doing everything in the 70s, John. <laughs> it was fun. It was a fun decade. In the era of generative AI, um, you know, for a couple of years now. And, and we're, we're accelerating there. Talk about how you see that being used in advertising and how you feel that will be used in the future in advertising. It's easy to want to push a button on a machine and, and, and poke it with a stick and say, do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Making yeah. money, yeah. do the right thing. Right. Um, and, and it's also easy to say, I'm not using any of that stuff. I want the full on human creativity and the human touch. And that's always better. Is there a happy medium? Is there not a medium? Is there a new evolution? Where's that going? Yeah. So, you know, I think you hit you hit on two really, really important things. There's kind of two people uh, in this world right now. There's the AI will rule the world. AI is the, the cyber bullet. We got to replace humans. It's going to do everything. And the AI will win the world, right? I'm a human person. I don't trust AI. It's going to be, you know, Skynet's going to become aware and, and we're in trouble. And so there, you know, when you look at all of the research that's been done, uh, IBM Watson did some great research in 2017. Um, taking a human intelligence audience, taking an artificial intelligence tool and having them do a series of events. And in every case, the combination of humans and AI working together, augmented intelligence, they called it cognitive computing at the time, um, run out in all those series of tasks. Uh, and so what we believe is that the combination of Using AI to do what it's really good for, handling that volume and velocity of data, doing predictive modeling at a speed that humans just can't do, making decisions out of that, but making sure that the data that goes in is high quality, accurate data, because good data in, good decisions out. As we've always heard, bad data in, bad decisions out, right? So we have to make sure as humans that that data in doesn't have bias and that it's accurate, that it's trained properly, and then the decisions that are made, the output from that has to be curated. So, you know, there, there's a great, you know, one, one metaphor that I like to use is um, Tony Stark. I, I don't know if you're a Marvel fan. Sure. Uh, okay. So I'm a huge Marvel fan. Uh, and uh, Tony Stark is a brilliant scientist. But how did Tony Stark become Iron Man? Well, the elements of Iron Man, the arc reactor, was an endless supply of fuel. That's data today, right? That's coming in. It's crazy. He had Jarvis, which was the artificial intelligence that allowed him to make calculations very quickly, but they were made in concert with each other because he's a brilliant human. And sometimes he would invite Jarvis in saving the world. Very important. Uh, then he also had the suit, which was the infrastructure that's, you know, equivalent of our ecosystems that are out there that make all of this work. ESPs and DSPs and DMPs and CRM platforms. It's all the infrastructure suit that we're wearing. And then you have replacers that make you fly. You know, the, the energy um, is the deployment of marketing programs across the world. So we are using augmented intelligence to turn our clients and our employees into superheroes. That's what we're doing, John. And that's where I think it's all going. It's the Tony Stark model of the market. That's <laughs> it, man. That's it. You too can be Iron Man, I swear. <laughs> I wish. I wish. I, I, do, I do like the work together model, the, the better together model. And it is certainly true in my experience working with, for instance, ChatGPT or something like that, which, which is kind of like working with a genius who is also an idiot. 
<laughs> um, totally. And 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 there's there's amazing things that ChatGPT can do, but then there's obvious errors that it makes that you can correct. And this is oh, so sorry about that. Let me try that again. Yeah. And then it does. And maybe you get something good. Maybe you need to refine farther and other things. And I've seen that in other areas where I'm working with generative AI, whether that's uh, creative diffusion for for our mid journey yeah. or something. Yeah. Or, or things for, for content creation as well. That said, you got to think that there's a, a space for generative AI in ad creation, on the fly ad creation that is a one of one, that it will only ever exist in this very moment mm -hmm. for that particular ad impression, for that particular user or device that is coming there. And that might be on a platform like Facebook that, or Meta that knows a lot about you. And can craft that specifically to some of your history and other things. And it might be in, let's say, a programmatic world where all that's known about you is maybe an IP address, a rough location, a timestamp, um, and 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 a few, you know maybe maybe a, a context, right? That sort of thing. You got to think that we're going to be using generative AI, and and are already are using generative AI for those scenarios. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. So you know, there's two things that go into that calculation. Uh, one is competence thresholds. How confident am I that I know it's you from a deterministic standpoint versus a probabilistic standpoint? And if it is probabilistic, what's my confidence threshold in that, that I know it's you? Um, what is my confidence threshold that I'm delivering it to you on the right channel, that the message is correct, right? So it's all that. And then the second thing is, what's my risk tolerance? How risky is it for me to put something in front of you that may annoy you? Um, Advertisers sometimes aren't worried about that. We know that, right? You, which is, and so when you look at some of the like contextual advertising that happens today, I would argue that it's really, really horrendous. So you could be on a website that's talking about a, an international conflict that's horrible that's going on today, and there'll be a banner ad for travel to that location. And it's like, come on, guys, we can do better than that. I swear. And so, look at the issue. Yeah, no, please, no, no. So, so, so that risk tolerance is really important, and and that's where, to me, you can uh, calibrate augmented intelligence to be automated to human, depending on your confidence threshold and your risk tolerance. If I'm in a self-driving car, you're gonna bet that I want a heavy dose of augmented intelligence, human involvement in making sure everything's going okay. I really do. If I'm serving up an SMS message to a customer that I know, but coming from my own first party data, then I'm pretty confident that I'm gonna deliver that in the right way on the right platform. And they're gonna be, uh, have given me the permission to receive that on a mobile device. I'm good with that. Let's, let's automate that all day long. So I think that's the calibration that, that's going on. You know, one of the things that we've done and that's really important along these lines is um, we did a test. You mentioned ChatGPT. Um, we, uh, we do a ton of creative services, copywriting and content development is one of those, especially for, for email content and ad unit content. And so we did a test of headers, ChatGPT, and then a curated augmented intelligence group that was controlling the props and the data, historical data into the models, training the models, and then curating. And time and time again, the best performing marketing, the best performing advertising came from the augmented intelligence world. The chat GPT version was not usable 
for a couple of reasons. Brand standards and guidelines were all over the place. And so if you're an advertiser and you're going to trust an open AI type of tool, you better make sure that you have control over your brand standards and guidelines in what it outputs. Um, the second thing is the intellectual property that is created from this. So if I'm a marketer and I spend the time to train a model to create creative that is so good that it's making my consumers respond, that model is owned by OpenAI or Google or Meta. You don't want them to own your intellectual property. You want to own that intellectual property because that becomes a competitive moat over time. And so there's, there's, there's considerations around compliance and privacy, governance, intellectual property that are only important to consider before just saying, I'm going to automate this thing and go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. I want to hit one other topic uh, before we're done. And it's a bit of an old fashioned word, which is kind of odd. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty new, but it's a little look, look for me. I'm old fashioned, John. I'm looking. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Omni Channel a lot. Like, I want to say five years ago, something like that. And we don't hear the word as frequently anymore. But it's interesting. I just looked at some data and I uh, obviously uh, am, am building out all kinds of things all the time based on data, what's going on in marketing and advertising. And I looked at what ad networks were gaining the most share Yay. on there over the past quarter. And so I actually saw that most of the major, the ones that everybody knows, the big ad platforms, the Googles, Metas, uh, that sort of thing, were, were actually, they actually declined a little bit in the past quarter. Um, so want to dig into that. Looked at the ones that were gaining. Um, there were interesting ones there. One view was gaining, and that is Roku's ad network, mm -hmm. right? Um, I saw Wondery was gaining. Wondery is a podcasting platform. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. Art Media was gaining. That's a podcasting platform. I saw a bunch of others, TV Scientific, that's CTV, and that was gaining. And I saw some interesting data that there was some uh, custom SMS and some retail media and some OEM platforms like LG would ship something on their phones or Samsung would ship something on their phones and there'd be ads running off of that that were actually gaining. Talk about the media mix as people go forward. It seems like it's getting broader and more complex. I, I think that's I think that's right on. I think that um, you, you can't think about it as omni-channel in that sense anymore um, because they're, it's so fragmented at, at this point. There's so many great providers and channels that have unique data. Uh, the retail media networks is a great example. You mentioned those retail media networks have amazing recency of transactional data from shoppers who shopped in their store yesterday. Like that is the, you talk about freshness, freshness data at a, at a retailer. I mean, that is the freshest data you can get. And so those, those networks who are able to provide recency and accuracy of data in understanding who the person is, those are the ones that are growing and doing really well. So I, I get that. And I think it is fragmenting a ton. The way that I try to think about it, though, is less about the channel. I believe we should be channel agnostic and more about, I would say, omni-person. So instead of putting the channel at the center, put the person at the center and think about me as an omni-person. So what does that mean? In today's world, I work from home. I work remotely and I don't work nine to five anymore. I work from 7.30 to 10.30. But during that time, I phase in and out of being an employee and being a consumer. 
I'm B2B and I'm B2C throughout the day. In the morning, I get on, I check my email, I do a couple of things for work, and then I take my kid to school. I go from, you know, um, um, president of enterprise, Tom, to super dad, Tom, and in a couple of hours during the day. So seeing a third person in their daily life today is much harder than it's ever been. So you have to understand the consumer and the business aspects of who I am. The other thing about being an omni person is you have to understand who I am in my traditional world, physical world, and my digital world. So when we talk about omni-channel, you have to include direct mail, you have to include retail, you have to include the phone call I'm making to the customer service rep, because all of those channels now are relying on the same infrastructure and the same data for me as a person. If I'm booking a flight at American Airlines, which I love American Airlines, I might be doing it on my mobile app at one second, but then I don't finish the booking, I put it down, I save it, and when I go home, now I'm on my laptop and I'm finishing that thing, but I have a problem, so I call the executive platinum desk and I have a conversation with them. My expectation as a consumer is that they're going to know me throughout all of that, and they're not just going to know me as Tom, but they're going to know me as an executive platinum member, and they're going to treat me as such. And so understanding the omni person or that third person is critical when it comes to media mix analysis. Because now I'm letting who this person is and what they do throughout their day and the outcome that I want to achieve drive my channel selection instead of being channel oriented. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you're inventing new metrics, creating new words. You're moving my keys. <laughs> I think it makes sense. It's all good. No worries. Tom, this has been such a, it's a, such a great conversation. Always love, as I said right off the top, always love chatting with the people who have been there, done that, been at the beginning, and are still working and doing interesting things. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, John. Thank you so much. 